From the studios of Boise State Public Radio News, I'm Samantha Wright, filling in for Jim Goddard. It's Idaho Matters, and it's Friday. Time for our reporter roundtable. That's when we get you up to date on all the news that made headlines this week. Our panel today, Kevin Richard, senior reporter and blogger with Idaho Education News. Ian Max Stevenson with the Idaho Statesman. Christina Lords, editor-in-chief of the Idaho Capital Sun. Nate Eaton, news director at eastidahonews.com. And Murphy Woodhouse, reporter for the Mountain West News Bureau and Boise State Public Radio News. What a lineup. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. Hey, Sam. Happy Friday. All right, Christina, I'm going to start with you. We have done a lot on the show on the upcoming Idaho GOP Presidential Caucus, which is upcoming tomorrow. It's it's here. Um, about how it's closed, how uh, not even reporters can get in. We haven't heard a lot about how the caucus is going to work, uh, or at least what we know. And you guys had a great story on how it's going to be put together and how it's going to function as far as we know. So, Christina, you're up first. Tell me about the okay, caucus. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. yeah, on Saturday tomorrow, um, Republicans um, will caucus um, at 210 um, caucus sites throughout the state. Um, folks will need to be, um, it's not like a, a normal election day where people can kind of come and go between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. You have to be there if you're in the northern part of the state or Pacific time. You have to be there at 11 a.m. Um, noon mountain time here in the southern part of the state. Um, uh, Idaho GOP officials say that it should take between an hour or two hours. And each caucus site might have a little bit different feel or things going on. There may be um, uh, like certain presentations, video presentations from the presidential candidates. Sometimes there will be singing, um, different sorts of programs. Um, but uh, folks need to bring photo ID or something that proves who they are. Um, and um, that ID will be used to make sure that they're registered um, Republicans. And so there will be a registration process that might take a little bit of time um, at the beginning to let people in. Um, and it's just important to note, like, um, Canyon County Clerk Rick Hogaboom put out a, a statement yesterday just really urging people to understand that the that their election polling locations might be a lot different than where they're going to caucus tomorrow. So there are ways to figure out where you're supposed to be. Um, I want to put in a, a plug for the VoteIdaho.gov website that um, Secretary of State Phil McGrain just announced that they had updated um, yesterday. It, it looks fantastic. Um, it looks very modern. It's a great resource for Idaho voters to be able to go find some of this information that they're going to need to be able to caucus. So you can actually put in your name um, and your birthday and search for your voter record. It'll tell you if you're registered. Um, it'll tell you your precinct number, which is something that's vitally important to be able to vote tomorrow. Um, so it might also be note, um, or helpful to note the legislative district that you're in. And then you can take that precinct number and go to IdahoRepublicanCaucus.com and put that precinct number in there and it'll actually tell you where your caucus site is. So don't just show up to your usual um, spot that you usually vote. Really take the time to be able to um, figure out where you're supposed to be because you can't um, participate in the caucus that isn't your caucus site. So, um, you know, there are just a little bit of fundamental differences on how things will go. Um, the GOP officials said that this should take about an hour to two hours, depending on your caucus site. And then hopefully we'll have some results by 5 or 6 p.m., they said, uh, on Saturday evening. So um, stay tuned on that. But if you have questions, 
um, about this particular caucus, I, you know, I would check out the Idaho Republican caucus, um, dot com website, and that should be able to help you find where you're supposed to be. And there are a few things, um, and this, you brought this up in the article about, you know, it is different. It is run by the GOP. And so there are some things that you can't do. You can't, if you're sick tomorrow, you, you can't vote by proxy or, or by mail. If you're working and you can't get off, you can't go to the caucus. If you're overseas, say, serving in the military, you can't participate. Right. It's um, it's a fundamentally different process than um, other ways that we vote. There's no absentee ballot option. Um, you would have to physically be there in person at this very specific time. And I think it's one of the drawbacks of the caucus system. And it, I do think that we'll see, you know, less people being able to participate in the presidential um, nominating process um, because of the caucus. And of course, we've talked a lot about how we got here through um, legislation that removed the um, uh, primary date and things like that. Um, but we are where we are. And so, you know, it's it, I just think it's so vitally important to make your voice heard. So if you can show up. Um, I think it's just so important to participate, even if this might be um, a different process. Um, but yeah, there are no other options other than showing up in person at that specific time, 11 a.m. Pacific time or, um, you know, 12 noon um, on Saturday for um, mountain time. So yeah, it's very specific. Got it. And uh, there's a lot of great reporting at the Sun on the caucus and, and what we know, and uh, hopefully what we'll find out when it's over. Thank you, Christina. Kevin, you're up. Um, we're going to talk about efforts to reduce the school's facilities super majority. Um, just saying that sounds a little um, complicated. I want to point out that this is about schools. So if you have kids, perk up. And it's about taxes. So um, if you live in Idaho, perk yeah, up. If you pay taxes, you, know, you want to perk up as well. Exactly. Tell us about this. So this is a proposal that is now, it's on the House floor. It's going to get amended. We, we don't know what it's going to look like uh, once it gets amended. But what it would do, uh, since before statehood, it's baked into our Constitution, uh, school districts and other local government agencies have to get a two-thirds supermajority to pass a bond issue, to go into long-term debt you know, in the case of a school, from the school district, to uh, build a new school or repair an aging school. There have been repeated attempts over decades to try to address this. This bill came out of the House Education Committee, and what it would do is it would reduce the two-thirds supermajority to a 55% supermajority if an election is held in an even number year. And why is it an even number year interesting, and, and why is that part of this proposal? Well, that's the same year that uh, we have elections for governor or for president, or mm. primary elections uh, for statewide or federal office. So the idea is that these are elections that tend to bring out more voters. And if you have a greater voter turnout, you're getting more of a, a sample of where where voters stand on an issue. So that's the the rationale be, behind trying to reduce the supermajority on these elections. Now, like I say, this uh, still has to uh, go through the House and it's a constitutional amendment, right? So that mm. needs a two-thirds supermajority vote from the House just to get off of the House floor and then go over to the Senate and the same process goes on there. Then a constitutional amendment has to go to the electorate. Uh, voters would have a chance to decide. So even if this thing gets through both houses, which is really tough to do, it's gonna, I, I think mm. it's got a, a a tough road to hoe to get through the House and get a two-thirds uh, 
supermajority. It still has to go through the Senate, then it has to be ratified by voters. So we're a long way from this happening. But I think it's significant that this got to the House floor. That's uh, that's farther than proposals to reduce the supermajority have uh, have gone in past years. Oh, fascinating. Okay, um, we're going to keep an eye on that. Like you said, it's 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 tricky to get it through, and then it'll go to the voters. So if it does, it's got a long row to hoe. Nate, you're up. Um, the state this week on Wednesday attempted to put convicted murderer Thomas Creech to death. But they had to stop the execution, and now no one seems to know what's going to happen next. Um, And now we're hearing from you that the prosecutor in the Jeremy Best murder case is seeking the death penalty. So catch us up. Tell us what's going on in the Best case. I think a lot of people who've been following the Thomas Creech case um, will be interested in this as well. Yeah, this is a case that uh, right before Christmas, a... An Amber Alert went out for a missing 10-month-old toddler who uh, was taken by his father and the child's mother was found dead in her home. And uh, the next day, they found the toddler who was also dead and the suspect, his name is Jeremy Best. And uh, Jeremy Best has been charged with killing his wife, who was pregnant at the time, along with their 10-month-old Zeke Best. He is saying that he had a mental breakdown, and it's very clear hours before uh, these deaths happened, these killings happened, um, he walked into a convenience store completely naked and was caught on camera walking around the store, was clearly distraught. He was taken to the hospital for a mental evaluation and released, and then, you know, unfortunately, hours later, these people lost their lives. So it's been a big talker of a story over here in eastern Idaho, obviously, mm-hmm. and the prosecutor had 60 days from the date of arraignment to declare if she was going to declare the death penalty on him, and she did announce this week that that will be happening. Ironically, the date did it was the same day that Thomas Creech was supposed to die mm. that she announced that she was seeking the death penalty, and of course, this is something that if if you don't declare it in those first 60 days, you can't add it to the table later, mm. but you can always take it off as part of a plea agreement or something like that. So it, it is yet to be seen. It's not necessarily guaranteeing he will be put to death, but it is an option. And it does, you know, continue that conversation about the using the death penalty. You know, there has been questions and maybe another guest will get to this. I don't want to step on anybody's toes about the firing squad, which was brought up. Why Idaho now allows the firing squad. So why aren't they just using the firing squad? Well, they don't have a policy manual to handle that mm. yet. The state doesn't. There also isn't a place to do it. Uh, they have the, the state prison officials have said we're not equipped for that. But I spoke with one of the uh, stepbrothers of Thomas Creech's victims yesterday who lives in Idaho Falls, and they want Thomas Creech to die by a firing squad. They're oh. saying, just do it. We've waited 40 years since our loved one was killed back in 1981, over 40 years. Let's just get it done. And so, of course, that that is a whole other issue transpiring. Another case coming up, Chad Daybell's trial begins April 1st. He, it is a death penalty case there too. So there are a couple of cases mm. where death penalty is an option that that still haven't been resolved. Absolutely. And I know you've been following the Daybell cases from the beginning. Um, I think it's interesting because I think the, uh, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I am I'm would guess that the Department of Correction is not enthusiastic about using a firing squad. I don't think anybody would be um, in that situation. And so, you know, that's just, it's, 
what do you do? What do you do? And, and I think that's the questions everybody's asking. So uh, I'm glad you're following these cases and, and um, keeping track with this. Yeah, okay. we'll see what happens with Creech. I think that that the big question is now get figure out what's happening there and then, you know, look look ahead to the future for future cases. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Ian, you had a story about an Idaho bill in the legislature. It would dissolve the ACHD, that's the 80 County Highway District Commission, for partisan seats. Okay, so explain this and how would this work? Yeah, so um, the Ada County Highway District, if people don't know, it's uh, pretty unusual, but it's a statewide uh, commission that operates, is in charge of um, building and maintaining most of the county's roads, including even in uh, the middle of Boise and Meridian. Uh, they also control most of the roads in those cities as well. Uh, and this, this bill uh, proposes to dissolve the current board, uh, which has five members, um, who are elected uh, with uh, nonpartisan seats. Um, it would, and, and they currently um, draw their own boundaries for their districts with each census. And this new bill would dissolve the board, hand the um, drawing of those districts over to the Ada County Commission, which is currently uh, controlled by Republican members. Um, and then in 2026, it would also make those um, elections for the ACHD commission partisan. So uh, people running for those seats would be affiliated with a specific party. It would appear on the ballot um, and they would become partisan elections, just like uh, voting for a legislator, uh, et cetera. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty big change locally if this bill were to go through. Um, and I think it's something that um, has caused quite a bit of consternation locally um, uh, for a number of reasons, one of which being that the the method to dissolve the board that they've put forward would cut short the terms of some existing um, members of the commission who were elected to four-year terms two years ago. They have uh, two years left of their term, uh, or you know, or they will come the end of this year. Um, but they would be those terms would be cut short, and there would be new elections held sooner than than the terms that they were elected to. Well, the legislature has already um, attempted to get the ACHD to stop um, doing anything but roads. So, you know, back off on sidewalks and bikeways and that sort of thing and just put the money into roads. Is is this new bill, is this just an attempt to get rid of the ACHD? Um, does, it, does it feel like that? So that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that definitely um, from the opponents who have come out against this bill, um, I think there's suspicion that uh, the reason for this bill is tied to some of those uh, same concerns the lawmakers have had, uh, because as of two years ago, the ACHD commission, um, a majority, a controlling number of them have expressed support for uh, some of those um, non-car pedestrian and bicycle related infrastructure projects that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also something that, for instance, the Boise City Council was interested in implementing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's suspicion that uh, this might be related to that. I should say the um, lawmakers who are sponsoring it have denied that. They say that they want to um, do this because they want to increase rural representation on the board. Um, and I should say this would also um, 
make the board, it would make it a seven member board rather than uh, a five member board as it is currently. Um, so, but th so that, but that question I think is a good one. And I, something that was um, notable, I think uh, this week was uh, they had a hearing on this bill in the house um, that, that I attended and a number of people testified, um, none of whom favored the bill, um, including members of the current commission. Um, they also received um, written testimony from local mayors of Boise, Meridian, Garden City, who said they hadn't been consulted on um, this proposal and what it might do. Um, and lawmakers on the committee, um, almost none of them had anything positive to say about the bill. Uh, there was one lawmaker from Meridian, um, Representative Petsky, who said he um, liked some aspects of the bill, but not not others, and therefore voted against it. Um, but despite the bill not having, um, you know, affirmative support from lawmakers, it, at least in their comments, it still passed the committee and was sent to the House floor. So at this point, it's sort of unclear um, what majority of lawmakers think about it, and we'll have to see where it goes. Well, wait and see, I guess. Murphy. You had a chance this week to break down the 14th annual Conservation in the West poll. And some of the things you found were just fascinating. Um, tell me about the poll. What is it and what did you find? Yeah, I mean, it came out uh, last month, uh, but but I, I do think that some of the results are just, you know, really worth uh, putting on people's radar. So it's a, it's a very sizable poll and it's run by uh, Colorado College. It's nearly 3,400 voter respondents and at least 400 in eight Western states, uh, certainly including Idaho, but also Arizona, Colorado, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. Um, they did do a separate presentation of results from Latino respondents, which are also interesting, but I'll just kind of start with the poll in general. So participants were asked a number of questions about a wide range of conservation issues and policies. And the big picture result is that the poll, now in its 14th year, as you mentioned, has again found broad bipartisan support for a range of conservation policies and concern about serious environmental problems like climate change, and as, as well as, as just kind of deep region-wide love for public land. And so I'd like to just run through some of the some of the results to give listeners a sense of what we're talking about here. And I do apologize in advance. We are going to uh, be talking about a lot of numbers, but I, I, <laughs> I, I promise that at least I think they're interesting. Um, so nearly 90% uh, of respondents have visited public lands in the last year, hmm. and nearly a quarter have done so more than 11 times. And that certainly includes me and probably a number of people uh, here right now with us. Yep. Um, uh, 85% 80, say that a public official's positions on environmental issues will figure prominently when voting. And mm -hmm. that's nearly all registered Democrats, but also three quarters of Republicans. Mm. Um, 85 to 90% support uh, the following policies requiring oil and gas companies to pay for cleanup, creating new national parks and monuments. Uh, building wildlife crossings and limiting night pollution for night sky viewing. And, and now I'd like to get into some of the results. I mean, maybe some of those were eye-popping for some people, but I'd like to get into some that were just, just really kind of uh, grabbed my attention. Uh, for the first time, uh, the poll found that a majority of all three voter groups, Republicans, Independents, and Democrats, say that they want to see conservation prioritized over energy production. Oh. And respectively, that's 52% of Republicans, 72% of Independents, and 89% of Democrats. Interesting. 78% uh, of all respondents say they want to see animal migration routes uh, or their protection rather prioritized over new development. Um, and, you know, to, to kind of explain these, you know, quite, uh, you know, just just overwhelming 
uh, re uh, responses, uh, some of the folks behind the poll point to really high levels and in some case record levels of concern about environmental issues. Um, nearly 90%, again, this includes registered Democrats, uh, Republicans, independents, nearly 90% say they're worried about habitat loss, water pollution, and microplastics. And then fully two-thirds say that they have, I mean, this isn't just saying that they think climate change is a problem. Fully two-thirds said that they have personally seen climate change's impact in their state. And that figure for Idaho, while lower, is is still 50%. And, you know, as we see on many issues, there's obviously often a very large gap between what voters say they want and what the government actually does. Mm -hmm. uh, but these numbers at least show where voters of all stripes are. They're concerned about the environment. They love their public lands and they want their elected representatives to take action on these issues. There's some very interesting numbers in there, especially um, the energy conservation and and some of the others. You you drilled down further also in a couple of articles that we're going to link to um, about uh, one of them was about Latinos and how they responded in the poll. I think this is fascinating. And I, I guess my question to you is, um, this is a poll that I think lawmakers and policymakers should really be taking a look at to see how voters feel. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly what uh, the people who run this uh, say. Yeah, I mean, like like voters are speaking very clearly here. And then, you know, to get into a little bit of detail about Latino respondents specifically. Um, yeah, so they did a separate presentation the day after the main results, and I'm really glad they did. And I promise I won't make this one as much of a, a data avalanche. But one of the one of the key points made by presenters is that historically, the voices of Latinos and other minorities have not always figured prominently in policy discussions about the environment. Mm. Uh, but these these results just very clearly show why politicians ignore them at their own peril, I would say. Uh, on a number of questions, Latinos showed the highest or at least above average support for conservation policies or concern for environmental issues. And one of the presenters, uh, Daniela Zavala, with uh, Hispanics enjoying camping, hunting in the outdoors, Orecho, um, she made a really compelling point about why that just shouldn't be surprising at all. She said uh, Latinos are on the front lines of climate change. Uh, other research separate from this poll shows that uh, many Latino families don't have air conditioning in their homes or struggle to pay high utility bills that are associated with the extreme temperatures that climate change is bringing and promises to bring more of. Mm. Um, they're also disproportionately represented in a number of outdoor labor sectors like agriculture and construction. And I think the, the real takeaway here is that, you know, they have at least as much skin in the climate change game as anybody. And I think in many cases, a lot more. Wow. I think it's fascinating. Um, check it out. Uh, it's on our website. Kevin, here we go. On Wednesday, you published a story. I'll read the headline. U of I funnels $7 million to Phoenix Consulting to Green's former employer. That's U of I President Scott Green. And a lawmaker brought up the article when Green stood up before the legislature's budget committee. And I want everyone to hear what Green said during that, uh, that committee. Uh, let's take a listen. Senator Lent, and then... Uh, uh, Mr. Co-Chair. Uh, President, thanks for being here. I read with interest yesterday this article that infers uh, funneling money to a former, former employer. Would you uh, maybe speak to that? President Green. Mr. Chairman and, and Senator Lent, thank you for that. And I know that comes from a good place you asked that question, and I deeply appreciate it. Um, let me start, excuse me, give, give me a minute. There we go, sorry about that, sorry. 
so let, let me let me address and I appreciate you asking the question. There's been an attempted, you know, thinly veiled character assassination attempt, it, it appears, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to this. <laughs> For those who did not see it, there was an article published yesterday with the title, U of I funnels 7.3 million of Phoenix Consulting to Green's former employer, and makes a lot of uh, implications about that, you know. So Kevin, uh, I guess I have to ask you if you're trying to assassinate Green's character with your reporting. Well, here are the facts, uh, Sam. The, the story broke on Tuesday, and on Wednesday and on Thursday, uh, Scott Green was before legislative committees, and he made his displeasure known. But here are some facts. Just about anything of substance that he said about my story was in my story. We reported that he says that he has no financial stake in Hogan Lovells, the uh, law firm that got the $7.3 million in business. He says that that decision to hire Hogan Lovells was not his decision, that it was made actually by university counsel acting on his recommendation. That was in my story. Yeah, he says that uh, the UOI decided to hire Hogan Lovells because they have unique experience in areas like acquisitions and education law. That was in my story. I heard nothing this week that suggests even an inaccuracy in the story, much less character assassination. I I I don't know where to begin. Um, well, I, well, I'll, I'll pick it up because this isn't about Scott Green and it sure isn't about me. Here's the bottom line and here's why people ought to care about this story. We spend two months trying to get these invoices to try to get a sense of how much the U of I has been spending on outsourcing and consulting on this Phoenix purchase. We now know that that's more than $11 million. It's actually, we've got updated figures from when the story ran on Tuesday. That's $11 million that the University of Idaho has spent so far on this pro purchase with the idea that that money is gonna get recouped somewhere down the road after the purchase goes through. They'll get the money through revenues from Phoenix or they'll, they'll finance this through uh, the process of purchasing Phoenix. If the Phoenix purchase doesn't go through and that's, Definitely still a very real possibility. The U of I is on the hook for the $11 million and counting that it has already sent to consulting firms, not just Hogan Lovells, although Hogan Lovells is by far the uh, largest uh, uh, largest beneficiary of this outsourcing. This is $11 million of money from the University of Idaho that's gone out to these consultants that uh, U of I may have to eat those costs. That's what's most important here, not what Scott Green thinks about me. Well, this U of I purchase of Phoenix University, it's very controversial. Green continues to stand by the potential purchase. And in fairness, I want to play a clip also from Wednesday from Green about that. At the end of the day, we strongly believe that this is in the best interests of the state of Idaho. Um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, helping us address the enrollment cliff to programming to reaching urban students or uh, rural students out where they live. Um, the systems that they have are world-class programming they have that we just don't have in here in the state of Idaho. We don't have an online nursing program. There's just so much that, so much benefit here, and they're so financially strong, and they're doing so well, as, as you'll hear tomorrow, that um, you know, the risk in this transaction is actually quite low. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just tension with articles being written or or things outside the state house. There's a lot of tension in the state house between Green and lawmakers. Uh, we put together a mashup from Wednesday between Green and the co-chair of the Joint Finance and Budget 
committee. Yep. Let's take a listen to that one. Uh, you know, I would strongly recommend you get an outside second opinion from an independent law firm uh, on that. Um, if they confirm it, great. Then at least you have something that you know you can rely on. Uh, but right now, this this is too important, and it's um, too of specialized in an area for uh, to rely on a generalist. Uh, President Green, I take issue with your criticism of Miss Bowen. Oh, I didn't criticize. You hired your own lawyer, and so did we. And to personally demean Mr. Chairman, writing, I, I object. I take issue. I object. I am not going to uh, criticize your lawyers, yeah. though I may have a different opinion about their opinion. But I think that was inexcusable. Let me start by saying I was not criticizing the lawyer. I, you know, again, we we're looking at the work and and the facts that that are provided. Um, we think a lot of your lawyer. Um, I have great respect. What I was saying is my lawyer, Ken, and they're generalists. Um, so I think it could benefit from a second opinion was all we were saying. Now, Kevin, I think this shows some of the tension going on, but it, it also relates directly to what happened in JFAC this morning, um, which I'm going to ask you about right now. Well, first of all, it definitely does reflect the tension between legislators and uh, the U of I at this point. I, it's very uncommon to hear a legislator uh, upbraid a university president like that. Uh, and I've known that representative, Wendy Horman, the, the House co-chair of JFAC for years. I don't think I've ever seen her more upset than she was on Wednesday. She was so, shaking. She was. Yes, she was shaking. I, I put that in my story. She was visibly shaking. Um, and, and it does kind of fast forward to what we saw in uh, the House State Affairs Committee today. Um, Ms. Bowen that we hear in that sound clip, that's Elizabeth Bowen. She is the legislator, legislature's attorney, and she has recommended and, and helped to craft a resolution that would ask the State Board of Education to reconsider the purchase of Phoenix. And it does leave open the op option of the legislature filing a lawsuit to try to stop the Phoenix purchase. I mean, if this resolution passes both houses, it opens up the door for legislative leaders to pursue a lawsuit. Uh, this resolution passed House State Affairs unanimously on Friday morning. Uh, there was a brief attempt to try to maybe eliminate some of the language about a possible lawsuit. Uh, that went nowhere on the committee. Uh, and like I said, it passed unanimously. It now goes to the House floor and it gives you a sense, it gives you a sense, A, of how much concern there seems to be uh, about this purchase uh, among a sizable segment of the legislature. And it also reflects the fact that you know, the legislature is listening to its attorney, uh, you know, who has said, you know, this is a legal issue that should go to court and, you know, it, it probably should be adjudicated and, and has openly said that a decision like this, a decision like purchasing the University of Phoenix for $685 million, her holding is that that is a legislative decision. That should not be a State Board of Education decision. So it's a very interesting, a very high uh, tension balance. It's a very, very tense power struggle right now going on between the legislature and the State Board of Education and the University of Idaho. And I think we're just starting to see it play out because, again, this resolution now goes to the House floor. We'll probably see a vote on that probably early part of next week, I would, I would imagine. All right. Um, Ian, 
Idaho lawmakers today, or not today, this week, moved to protect IVF as a lot of backlash is growing against an Alabama decision. Give us just a little background and tell us what's going on with the lawmakers. Yeah, absolutely. So last month, um, the Alabama Supreme Court um, made a very significant uh, ruling that affects that state, um, saying essentially that um, embryos, so very early stages of uh, a woman's pregnancy uh, that are produced as part of um, in vitro fertilization, better known as IVF, mm. um, could be considered or should be considered legally children and, and have the rights of um, of people. Um, that's led to um, serious um, concerns in the state uh, from people who are trying to have children and are going through that process right now um, and have had to pause that um, given the state's ruling. Uh, but more broadly, I think it's, it's put... Um, Republicans and legislatures that are controlled by um, the GOP across the country on the defensive because um, the Alabama Supreme Court, they derived this decision from the state's um, anti-abortion um, pro provision of the state's um, constitution um, related to um, uh, ab abortion. And a lot of the um, recent laws since this U.S. Supreme Court overturned uh, the right to abortion and put that back into the hands of state legislatures. A lot of the language um, that states have passed, including in Idaho, talks about um, rights beginning at fertilization or um, life begins at conception. Um, phrasings like that, which um, has concerned now for a couple of years, um, proponents of IVF who worry that it could jeopardize its um, its legal status. And that's exactly what then happened in Alabama. And so in, in Idaho this week, um, there's a, a coalition of uh, two lawmakers so far, one Democrat and one Republican, who are hoping to um, specifically pass legislation in the coming weeks to uh, affirmatively protect IVF, because even though um, there has there's been no ruling um, or determination that um, IBS is IBF is not protected in the state at the moment. Um, there's concern in Idaho, just as there is um, in other states, that um, the same conclusion could be drawn based on the state's anti-abortion laws. Fascinating debate. Uh, I know you'll keep on it. Kevin, we're going to jump to the latest in the Brandon Durst saga. Um, and we say saga because it's ongoing, long ongoing, but try to condense it. So, you know, try to condense it, of course. Yeah, we'll try to just stick to this week's news here. Uh, Brandon Durst uh, has filed a tort claim against uh, the State Department of Education, State Board of Education, and he's alleging that he was wronged because the state board did not grant him an emergency cer certificate to serve as the superintendent up at the West Bonner School District. Remember, he was uh, hired up there last summer, uh, only was there for a few months, didn't get the emergency certification. State board said he wasn't qualified for it. Um, he is now saying that he is uh, he's seeking compensation for losing his job, and he's seeking, I'll just read from the tort claim here, punitive damages due to professional, emotional, and reputational harm. Comes to a 1.5, correction, $1.25 million claim that he's made yeah. against the two agencies. This is not a lawsuit. Uh, a tort claim is a precursor to filing a civil suit. Uh, now the agencies have, uh, I believe it's 90 days to respond to the tort claim. So 
what it means, in other words, is that the Brandon Durst saga is uh, not done. It'll probably continue, well, at least for 90 days while we wait to see how the agencies respond to the claim. Wow. Fascinating. Um, all right. Christina, the House, uh, passing a bill that would criminalize making or sharing sexually explicit AI images of real people. Um, Taylor Swift comes to mind. She had uh, this happen to her just recently. What's going on in the Idaho House? Was this because of Taylor? <laughs> right. Um, I don't know if it was specifically because of Taylor. And the legislature is looking at several bills to address um, AI images. This one is for um, sexually explicit images. Another bill um, was proposed to deal with AI in campaigns and um, essentially making it look or feel or sound like um, candidates were saying or doing things that they weren't. Um, but this particular bill was um, unanimous, unanimously passed by the House um, on Tuesday, and it's a bipartisan bill um, sponsored by uh, Julianne Young of Blackfoot and John Gannon of Boise. And essentially under the bill, it would become a crime to disclose sexually explicit AI images or media with essentially malicious intent with the intent to harass someone, to humiliate someone. Um, it also, um, the bill also provides um, uh, language that would make it become a crime to threaten to disclose sexually explicit AI generated media. Um, so even um, just threatening to to publish these would become a crime under this bill. Um, it, under the on, if it if the bill becomes law, which it's headed over to the Idaho Senate for consideration, so it still has some um, of the legislative process to get through. But if it becomes law, the first violation would be considered a misdemeanor, while a second violation would actually have a five-year um, mm. time period, or a second violation in a five-year time period would be considered a felony. So, oh. um, so yeah, I think what has happened to Taylor could happen to Idahoans, and I mm. think that this is a um, you know, a, a pretty common sense uh, sort of approach from both Republicans and Democrats to address AI and how it might start really influencing our daily lives. And um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. All right, Nate, you've got a story that uh, that warmed my heart, a community coming together to help a veteran um, to to buy a house. Tell me about this. Yeah, the veteran's name is Matthew Crumweed. He served in Afghanistan. It was June of 2002 when he stepped on an, a bomb, uh, caused all sorts of physical damage. He lost both of his legs below the knee. His arm was uh, badly damaged. So he spent quite a bit of time in the hospital, had 50 surgeries, yeah. uh, but he has not let that get, you know, keep him down. He is working at a nonprofit called Higher Ground, where he teaches adaptive sports to people in similar circumstances. Well, the Gary Sinise Foundation, the famous actor from Forrest Gump and several other movies, uh, their foundation reached out and said, we want to help you build a home and these are uh, special homes they're called rise uh, through the rise program they make specially adapted smart homes for severely wounded heroes mm. so they are going to be building this home in pocatello for matt and the community uh, they're of course asking for uh, fundraising efforts from the community so there will be a big dinner with a silent auction and a trivia bowl coming up here in a few months there's different levels that people can help donate and you can read more about him. And if you're interested in donating, perhaps you can uh, find all the details at eastidahonews.com. Absolutely. It's a great story. Um, and the community is really, really coming out, I think. Nate, thank you for that. That's great. Murphy, I'm going to jump to you now because I have two words. Firefighting beavers. Yes, 
I said that firefighting beavers. Explain this to me. Yeah. So our, you know, if I'm not mistaken, our official station mascot is a, a beaver. So um, <laughs> yes, it pretty is. hard to resist a story like this. So anyway, um, as, as all listeners will know, our aquatic mammalian architect friends, of course, love damming mountain waterways. Uh, and in, you know, just a matter of months, they can turn them into broad, sprawling wetlands. And, you know, the idea that these wetlands could provide some level of protection from wildfires, not that surprising, fire, water, etc. And in fact, some scholarship has already established uh, this relationship. But what this paper did was explore that effect during even intense large wildfires. Uh, and they looked at uh, three major uh, 100,000 acre plus uh, wildfires in 2020 in Colorado and Wyoming. And those incidents uh, overlaid thousands of valley bottoms, uh, hundreds of which had the presence of beavers. And so the the, the big finding uh, is, is that nearly 90% of beaver dammed riverscapes in the study area created what are called fire refugia. And, you know, refugia, refuge, uh, those are oh. places where plants and animals can stay safe while an inferno rages. And that 90% figure, nearly 90% figure, uh, that compares to just 60% of non-dammed riverscapes. Again, I mean, having the presence of water, that's obviously going to have some impact, but we see a much larger impact when there is the presence of those uh, of those beaver dams. And so that's obviously important for immediate species survival when these these incidents and these infernos come through. It's a safe place for, for animals uh, to go to. But it's also really important for post-fire recovery. Uh, lead author Emily Fairfax explained that a major issue after blazes is the entrance of invasive species. But when you kind of have this surviving stock of species, plant and animal, it kind of gives native species a better chance uh, to bounce back. And it's, uh, you know, it's not for nothing that the main title of an earlier paper of hers was uh, Smokey the Beaver. Um, the the more recent paper looking at, at, at large, intense uh, incidents uh, concludes that, quote, uh, beaver populations and in turn beaver dam building can be part of a comprehensive fire mitigation strategy while offering additional benefits to biological communities, including humans, who are, of course, a part of the natural world, uh, even when fire is not an active threat. And uh, Fairfax says that part of what that may look like uh, is is trying to populate public lands with a historic uh, beaver presence. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn. I, of course, brought up Idaho's uh, famous, uh, and some see it infamous, uh, parachuting beavers. And, um, you know, uh, Fairfax suggested that perhaps a more humane, uh, more survivable uh, way to introduce beavers might be uh, preferable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we can find a way to uh, get the firefighting beavers uh, where they need to be to help the environment. That's a great story. I love it, Murphy. I love it. We've been speaking. Yeah, a fun, fun bit of research to highlight. I know. We've been speaking with Kevin Richard, senior reporter and blogger with Idaho Ed News, Ian Max Stevenson with the Idaho Statesman, Christina Lord, the editor in chief of the Idaho Capital Sun, Nate Eaton, news director at eastidahonews.com, and Murphy Woodhouse, reporter for the Mountain West News Bureau and Boise State Public Radio. Again, Murphy, thanks. That's just such a great story. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today. Love chatting about it. Thanks a lot, Sam. Thanks for listening to Idaho Matters. Boise State Public Radio and Idaho Matters are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Samantha Wright. We'll see you tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.